With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Dr. Amy Kohout, who is an associate professor of history at Colorado College and is the author of Taking the Field, Soldiers, Nature, and Empire on American Frontiers, which came out just this month with the University of Nebraska Press as part of their new Many Wests series. Welcome to the New Books Network, Amy. Good to have you here. I'm so glad to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Tell us about yourself, tell us your background, and maybe tell us a bit about how you became interested in history. I never know where to start with a question like this, um, which honestly I think is connected to what fascinates me about the work we do as historians. Where our stories start and stop matter for what it is we're doing, right? (laughs) Um, Right. So... I'm a cultural and environmental historian by training, um, and I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado with my husband and our dog. And I feel really lucky to be here in the Mountain West because honestly, this is pretty close to where I thought I'd move if I didn't find an academic job. I grew up outside Buffalo, New York, but I tell folks that I wish I was from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, It's where I lived for a few years before grad school, and it's maybe the first place I lived where I got to make a home for myself as an adult. So how did I become interested in history? Um, I found history and environmental history specifically in college, which is when I was starting to realize that I didn't really want to do my organic chemistry problem sets, uh, but I was staying in on Friday nights reading what I'd been assigned in my humanities courses. And so instead of majoring in chemistry, like I'd planned, um, I became a history major. And I wrote an undergraduate senior essay on ideas about natural beauty at Niagara Falls, right, which is near I grew up. And I honestly wasn't sure if I wanted to go to graduate school for anything. Um, And my work in environmental history had me thinking about trying out some environmental work, sort of more applied work. And that led me to jobs uh, working as an environmental organizer, as a trail cook, um, later as the assistant director of a wilderness expedition foundation in the U.S. Southwest. Um, And I also worked in international development um, for IUCN, the World Conservation Union, in their office in Bianchen, Lao PDR, um, which is the job I did as a fellow with an organization called Princeton in Asia, um, which basically uh, places youngish people in a range of teaching and nonprofit and private sector jobs. So through all of that, I was really um, just continuing to think about some of the stuff I'd been grappling with in college, uh, namely sort of cultural notions of nature. Um, And it just continued to feel like we needed more context, more understanding of how we got to where uh, we are. So after a handful of years trying out all these different sorts of environmental jobs, um, I finally felt compelled to take take the GRE. (laughs) I think when you feel ready to take a standardized test, maybe it's time to, um, you know, sort of think about a life change. Um, And I applied to grad school. Um, And I often tell students that I'm an environmental historian instead of an environmental something else. 
because I think that there are things that historical approaches to environmental questions are sort of uniquely positioned to help us understand. And on that that last note about about using environmental history to to understand, what brought you to this particular topic? Why were these the questions that you were trying to understand? And in particular, I'm hoping you can tell us about an encounter that you describe in the book that you had with a dead bird, of all things, that helped to shape <laughs> this project. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking me that. Um, I think the story of this project is a really good reminder to follow our sources where they lead us rather than sort of expecting that we know what we're going to find. Um, and of course, there are lots of ways into the story of how this project came to be. But um, I guess I'll start with one of my early visits to the archives in December 2011. Um, so at that point, I knew that I was interested in examining how U.S. soldiers made sense of the landscapes of their service. And in particular, I was interested in soldiers who had served in campaigns against indigenous people in the U.S. West and in the Spanish-American and then Philippine-American wars in the Philippines. So I'd started looking for folks whose careers included service in both of these places and context to sort of figure out if any of their personal or military papers were in any archives, and I was going from there. So I had started putting together a list of, um, of soldiers, and I went to Washington, D.C. in December of 2011, where I think I'd been mostly planning to be at the Library of Congress, but I also went to the Smithsonian Institution Archives to take a look at the papers of someone named Edgar Alexander Mearns. And, you know, when you go to the archive, this was before things were digital. So I filled out a slip requesting some of the, box, the boxes from the collection. And when I turned in my slip, the archivist said, oh, we actually only have a couple of the boxes from this collection. If you want to see the whole collection, you'll have to go to the Division of Birds. And I was like, what is that? Um, a friend of mine, uh, when I described this, said that it sounded like the Division of Birds was like the Ministry of Magic, right? Um, and so learning that the boxes weren't in the place that historians tend to go, right, the archive uh, that holds manuscript collections, um, I called the Division of Birds, I made an appointment, and this set me on a totally different path. So, you know, a couple days later, I found myself sitting at a table in this small library that's tucked off of the main space for the Division of Birds, which is inside the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Um, and that large space is uh, filled with rows of cabinets that have drawers, and inside the drawers are um, a large portion of the birds that are part of the Smithsonian's collection. Um, and I was in this little library tucked off to the side, going through the boxes that they happened to have, which contained um, Edgar Mearns's um, field books and personal papers. And so um, I began realizing that Mearns's papers were there instead of in the archives because in addition to being an army surgeon, that's how I'd found him. That's what I was interested in. He'd served in the landscapes my project was trying to connect. He also was a naturalist and an ornithologist who collected more than 9,000 birds for the Smithsonian's collection. So as you can probably imagine, it didn't take long for me to ask if, uh, in addition to going through his papers, um, if maybe I could see a bird or two. I mean, I was sitting right there in this little room off this massive collection. And that experience, oh, sorry, Boomer has some things to add to this. 
That's okay. We have we have we have dogs. We have phone calls. We've had kids run in on podcasts. So it happens all the time. Amazing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and we're talking about animals and things. So it's, it's very true. fitting it's, too. It's totally totally relevant. I do consider Boomer <laughs> to be one of my many research assistants. Yes, um, of course. So. I'm sitting in this library looking at the field books and papers, and finally I think maybe maybe I can ask to see one of these birds. I'm right here. And and asking for that um, and sort of everything that followed really, I think, transformed the shape of this project. Um, you know, I sort of stepped outside of what I might think of as like a typical historian's archive and into this archive, archive of birds. Um, and I think it's probably appropriate just to mention that this is a great example of how historians never work alone. I think that there's often this uh, vision of, you know, the historian in a corner hunched over a desk with piles of books and, you know, it's dark and, um, and, and that this is where all of the brilliant things happen. Um, but I actually think that we rely on lots of other folks to do this work and we need the expertise and support of people like librarians and archivists, and especially in my case, bird specialists to sort of follow our questions where um, they lead us. And so the folks at the division, they showed me the bird collection. They showed me how it was organized. They invited me to sort of see how the collection was structured and to start to start realizing that while historians might think chronologically about lots of things, that actually folks who are thinking about natural history organize things taxonomically. And so that really shapes what what bird is next to which other bird in a collection and how they're structured. And so if you're interested in the collector, and not the specimen, you might actually be looking for things that are scattered across a taxonomically organized collection. This is so obvious to people who think about organismal biology, right, and natural history, but it was brand new for me as a historian. And it really had me thinking about sort of collecting and categories and um, and sort of the, the work and the expertise required to sort of produce these kinds of um, specimens or what we might call a scientific study skip. So the conversations that I had with folks at the Division of Birds, literally with like a bird in front of us on the table, led to us sort of brainstorming ways we might think about bringing together history and uh, ornithological study. And we came up with this plan for a collaborative digital project that would link individual specimens that Mearns collected with like the, the relevant page in his field book so we could think about what it would look like to bring these different kinds of materials together. And we made a really cool project. And right now it's not uh, live on the Smithsonian's website because of a sort of full web redesign. But I'm hoping we're going to be able to get that back up and available again. But that experience meant that I spent a couple of months um, in the division um, a few years after that first visit, um, you know, doing research to think about which specimens would help us illuminate which dimensions of the work of a collector and naturalist like Mearns. And just by being there and working with the collection so regularly, um, I ended up having uh, the opportunity to try my hand at bird preparation, which is something that I never imagined in a million years I would be doing as a graduate student and historian uh, researching a dissertation. Um, and so the book begins with me sort of narrating that experience, um, the experience of learning to transform a dead bird into a scientific study skin. Now, it took me solidly eight hours maybe more. Um, I've watched uh, these bird specialists do this in 15 minutes, um, just to make clear like what it feels like to be a complete novice, to need so much support and step-by-step -step instruction, and to really just appreciate learning something that is so wildly outside what you ever imagined for yourself. Um, and doing this just showed me a totally new way of thinking about some of the scientific work that soldiers were doing alongside their official military tasks. 
So none of that would have happened at all if it weren't for the generosity and expertise and support of folks at the Division of Birds. And I just remain so, so grateful to them for helping me to understand the work that they do. Well, there's more that I want to know about birds. I have more questions about, about birds <laughs> sure. that I want to ask you. But but you mentioned uh, the military a moment ago. And um, this book is all about soldiers. And it's all about military officials. And I'm wondering why that is. Why are soldiers? Why is the military a particularly useful method of understanding how Americans are viewing environments in the 19th century? Sure. Yeah. Well, let me back up and say that um, when we think a lot about some of the formative work in U.S. environmental history, we tend to see an emphasis on gentlemen travelers, artists, writers, um, as the sources who are sort of offering a window into how 19th century Americans thought about the natural world. And before I sort of came to this particular set of research questions, um, I was just starting to wonder what it might look like to ask cultural history type questions about non-elite or maybe less elite people. And I had started thinking about soldiers' relationships to the landscapes of their service, right? These men are steeped in the same sort of, I don't know, cultural soup as everyone else in the 19th century. They're hearing about the supposed wonders of the U.S. West, for example. Um, but then there are also folks who are assigned to work in those spaces. And I wanted to know what they wrote in their diaries, in their letters home, and in their more official writing. Um, I wanted to know sort of what they were writing about the work they were doing, um, about the places that they were basically assigned to transform, since these are the folks who are establishing military posts and routes. Um, you know, they're sort of part of what used to get framed as a kind of um, passive settlement story and really might be better understood as a story of invasion of, of Native homelands, right? So I think soldiers are offering us a different take than some of those, um, you know, sort of gentlemen travelers of the middle of the 19th century, because they're working in the landscapes that they're describing. And I think what's interesting is that, of course, their writing isn't limited to talking about the scenery. They're talking about the violent work they're doing, which is the work of U.S. empire in the West and then later in the Philippines for the folks that I'm focusing on. Um, and their thoughts, like they don't stay put with them. They're putting them on paper. They're sending them home to family members. They're writing for their hometown newspapers. And I think that it's often easy to think about soldiers as monolithic, right? But, but they aren't. They often reflect um, the dominant ideas about race and empire um, that are circulating in the moments where, when they're living. But sometimes they're also expressing some ambivalence about the work that they've been tasked with, even as they continue to do that work, right? So I think the questions that I had um, questions that I think U.S. soldiers are uniquely positioned to help us answer. They've turned me into this, I don't know, accidental military historian, or maybe not that. Maybe what I'm actually doing is suggesting that we can and should write cultural history with military sources. Um, so yeah, I think that soldiers um, are understudied in some dimensions, and I'm really interested to see what happens when we keep doing this work of bringing them as sources into these broader projects that are thinking about ideas. And as much as this is a book about particular people and you're using particular sources, it's also a book about particular environments. And this book is really, it's, it's a comparative study in a lot of ways of the military and of environments, both across the American West, but also in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines. And I'm wondering why you chose these two places and, and in what ways are these places similar? How are they very different from each other? And what do you think a comparative study like this tells us? 
Well, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot uh, of moving parts to that question. Yeah, <laughs> I can, for yeah. sure. For sure. I, 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 can, I, I can tackle it piece by piece here. Um, so to get at why these two places, um, I think I sort of have to back up a little bit and tell you that one of the first books I read in graduate school um, was Robert Rydell's All the World's Affair, classic. Um, I never really stopped thinking about it. And as I was trying to figure out what my like very first research paper in graduate school was going to be, I thought, oh, maybe I could examine representations of nature at a World's Fair. That would be like a contained project. I could go to one place. I could do some research. It would, it would be a way to start thinking about these questions connected to ideas and representations that really I'd been thinking about in different ways since college. Um, and I settled on St. Louis um, because far less has been written about St. Louis than the 1893 Chicago uh, fair. And also because like, you know, I'm a human and one of my dearest college friends had recently moved to St. Louis. So I thought, well, if I road trip out to St. Louis with my dog, I'll get to see folks that I love. Um, I'll have a place to stay. And, um, you know, the Missouri uh, Historical Society um, might currently be called the Missouri History Museum, um, has this extraordinary collection um, connected to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. And of course, the neat thing about studying World's Fairs is that the record of these events is enormous. And you could probably say the same thing about writing with military sources. There's just an overwhelming paper record, right, which opens up all sorts of possibilities and also presents its own challenges. So my research on the fair, um, it was really originally in my mind anyway, going to be a standalone thing. Um, it wasn't going to be the dissertation. Um, but after I wrote that research paper, um, I was taking a Southeast Asian history course, which was part of completing like a teaching field in Southeast Asian history, which is something I wanted to do to sort of maintain my connection to the region since I had lived and worked um, in Vientiane uh, before graduate school. And my professor pushed me to try to think about writing a research paper, even though I didn't necessarily have the language skills to be doing primary work um, with Southeast Asian sources. Um, and I immediately thought of a dimension of the 1904 St. Louis Fair as a way to maybe uh, carry out that assignment. Um, I thought about the Philippine Exposition, which is a 47-acre fair within a fair at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. And I started thinking about the ways that um, visitors to the fair experienced I don't know, what I regularly call a mashup, right? The 1904 fair was the celebration of the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and if you're doing the math, um, they were a year late, right? 1803. So the centennial would have been 1903, but they didn't get everything together in time. So what's currently the U.S. West was featured at St. Louis. And then if you were a visitor to this fair, you could literally walk across a replica of something called the Bridge of Spain, into this 47-acre exposition that was focused on the resources and opportunities available to Americans in the Philippines. And so I kept thinking about how the West and the Philippines were sort of smashed together in 1904, and that led me to thinking about what or who might link those landscapes. And this is how I came to soldiers. Soldiers are a link between these landscapes. There are men who served in both of these contexts who wrote about their service, um, and thought about sort of the connections between these places, in part because they were both part of their sort of experiences. Um, and I realized that um, if I focused on soldiers um, and thought about who they were and how their military service took them to the West, across the Pacific, to the Philippines, and back again, I might have a way to link the landscapes that were sort of mashed up next to each other at the fair. So in some ways, like I can narrate all these different pathways into how this became, I think, a very 
uh, weird project in a lot of ways. Um, but this fair research project, which was just supposed to be a one-off, opened up a way to think about places that we rarely study as parts of the same stories. Um, and so I think that that is what motivates um, this connection, right? To sort of think about identifying sources and then following them where they go, even if they take us across boundaries that we might think of as traditionally shaping fields of study. So I also might want to maybe gently push back against framing this as a comparative study, um, in part because I want to be really clear that I'm an Americanist and that that's my training. And so while the book moves from the U.S. West to the Philippines and then sort of back again to St. Louis to think about representations of the West and the Philippines at the fair, I think it's not a comparative project so much as a project that follows U.S. soldiers where they happen to lead me and again, to places beyond sort of the traditional boundaries of our field. So maybe rather than being a comparative study of two places, maybe instead it sort of looks at the way that U.S. soldiers thought about nature and empire in those two places and then sent those ideas back home. And I think one of the dimensions of this is the way that soldiers in the Philippines, whether they'd served in campaigns against Native nations in the U.S. West or not, sort of used or borrowed or co-opted the language of frontier army service to describe their work and also their opponents in the Philippines. So in the book, um, one of the things that I think about is, um, is sort of how soldiers used what we might call environmental language to describe imperial work. So maybe they're deploying or um, engaging with competing notions of wilderness, and they're even using the word hike or hiking as a kind of shorthand for violent expeditions targeting those they suspected were Filipino insurgents. So I think more broadly, what I'm trying to do by looking at these places together is to think through the links between soldiers' service um, in both of those landscapes. And I think that that helps us see how tangled together these ideas about nature and empire are. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to make the case that ideas about American nature and American empire develop together. And I hope that I'm contributing to scholarly conversations that might more fully bring the study of empire in U.S. Uh, environmental history sort of to the surface. And another important component in uh, uh, this, this whole idea of American empire in these places are museums and collections as well. So can you talk a bit about the role that museums play in the story that you are telling here? How are museum collections connected to these military expeditions and to this idea of empire in the American West and in the Philippines? For sure. Yeah, museums are part of my story, I think, because of uh, Edgar Mearns, right, that army surgeon and ornithologist whose papers led me to the division and really shaped uh, a lot of how this project then continued to evolve. But I also think that finding Mearns early in my research process helped me to think about the relationship between military and scientific work, and also about how museum collections can be an outcome of military occupation, right? And, and this is not a new idea, right? There's really great scholarship on the Smithsonian's Correspondence Network and on the work of um, institutions like the Army Medical Museum and the materials that it was collecting uh, through army doctors who are stationed across the West. Um, but I also think that uh, thinking about museums helped me to understand the contributions of sort of an individual like Mearns um, and also to sort of think a little bit about why he continued to serve in the U.S. Army. Right. So thinking about his personal experience, right, the army helped him get to the places where he wanted to observe and collect. Right. His identity was not solely as a 
military surgeon who um, liked to look at birds occasionally, I think in his mind, he really truly was a naturalist and ornithologist and the military enabled the work that he wanted to do. I think these there are these multiple parts of him that I think really rise to the level of sort of a professional um, identity. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, um, especially because sometimes we sort of limit our sense of like who we are as a sort of professional identity. And I think for folks like Mirans, this is really complicated. And uh, I found really a lot to think about there, especially at a moment when I wasn't sure what my professional identity was going to be. Um, so for Mearns, uh, right, the army helps him get to these places uh, that otherwise he wouldn't be able to travel to, um, to collect things he wouldn't otherwise see. And I think for the curators who are back in D.C. at the Smithsonian, having a colleague like Mearns meant that they had access to materials that otherwise they wouldn't be able to access. So if we're thinking broadly about like the history of the Smithsonian's network of amateur uh, collectors and the huge correspondence network that lots of folks have highlighted, that's earlier than Mearns. Um, but I think that Mirren's matters for the Smithsonian folks because of the access he's able to open up even after the heyday of that sort of network of uh, correspondence and amateur collectors, the fields that all these folks are involved in, they're professionalizing. But Mearns is able um, to keep growing the materials that exist in the museum. And also it's very clear that the folks who work in the museum sort of you know, build these relationships, some of which I think become true friendships with him. And they respect the work that he's doing. They save the collections for him to come work with himself, right? He's able to write some things that end up being formal specimen descriptions, right? So, so in some ways, I think he becomes part of this sort of curatorial network um, at the Smithsonian because of his access and also because of his skill. So I think when we're thinking about this on the level of institutions, right, there's a lot of synergy between... Um, between the military and between like large scale scientific endeavor, right? We can think to many of the massive federal surveys of the West and the army escorts that accompany many of those, right? That connection's not, not super new, but I do think that this uh, reflection on the more intimate level, the way that Mearns is operating um, personally uh, within these two sort of blurred or overlapping spaces of scientific and military work, I think that's really interesting. And I imagine that there are more folks than the folks that I've identified here who are working in multiple spheres sort of simultaneously. So if we think about Mearns, right, yeah, he writes about stepping away from a meeting with Apache leaders to go look for birds while he's deployed to the Southwest in the 1880s. Later in the Philippines, he's literally looting graves after occupying a village. He's shooting Filipino people with his collecting gun, right? So there is a lot of blurring here. All of this is tangled up in the work of empire. And I think, noticing those overlaps, noticing how challenging it can be to challenging it can be to like disentangle the scientific from the military or the violent imperial work from the pursuit of scientific knowledge, that all this stuff is connected, I think is is really important to think with. And I think sometimes we lose the context and the histories that are bundled up in museum specimens and, and collections, right? Especially natural history collections. So one of the things I'm trying to do by thinking about museums as institutions, but really thinking about maybe this more individual dimension to the work that someone like Mearns is doing in the field is to sort of really try to foreground the historical dimensions of collections that maybe we sometimes think of as like purely scientific. So I guess I'm really just continuing to ask, like, what do we find when we ask new questions of these specimens? And when we bring the tools and approaches 
of historians to spaces where the questions that are more commonly being asked are, are questions that have to do with, um, with scientific knowledge. I'm glad you uh, mentioned Mearns because I wanted to ask about some of the people in this book. This is a book that's full of, of all kinds of fascinating characters. And as we talked about a little while ago, one of your entryways into this project was thinking about how soldiers were making sense of and interpreting and creating new knowledge about the environments that they found themselves in and the people that they were encountering. So we talked a bit about Mearns, but can you maybe give a couple other examples of how soldiers were interpreting the places that they were in? I know that, for instance, you wrote about uh, the Black Hills. I also write about the Black Hills. And when I saw Dodge, Colonel Dodge pop up, I was like, I know that guy. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how people like Dodge or others are making sense of the places that, that they're being deployed to? Totally. Um, I will definitely talk about Dodge and maybe uh, so that I don't forget uh, Samuel Ovenshine. Um but I do want to say a little bit more about Merns just because, I mean, I could talk about him for hours. But um, I think he, he's ways, everywhere in this time period. Sorry to interrupt, but just I, I was amazed that Merns popped up in so many different places in this book. The guy's everywhere. Yeah. Th- and that's so wild, right? Because it's like, how come I've never heard of this guy before? <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> so I think one of the things you need to know about him, right, uh, which it's it's unfortunate that this is an audio recording because otherwise I would show you a picture of his mustache. It's uh, it's pretty magnificent. Um, and I think worth mentioning, even though I can't actually show you the picture. Um, but I think one of the things that's super interesting about Mearns and maybe why he's sort of become an anchor for the project um, is that he doesn't fit neatly into an existing narrative, right? Uh, there's no way to sort of slot him into the stories that we might already tell about uh the campaigns against Native nations in the second half of the 19th century, or, um, you know, any of the other stories that he sort of fits into. I already mentioned that he doesn't quite fit into the story of like amateurs supporting the Smithsonian's collections because he's a little too late for that. So it's like, how do you, how do you fit him into um, the narratives that we know? And I think one of the things that's actually interesting about him is that um, he's present in all these places, but he's not at the center. So if we're thinking about um, you know, sort of the, the span of his career, he serves in the Southwest under Generals Crook and Miles during the U.S. Army's campaign against Geronimo, right? That's a story that has been told over and over again. He serves in the Philippines alongside General Leonard Wood. He helps to carry out some of the especially brutal expeditions um, in the Southern Philippines, but he's not the one making those decisions. So he doesn't really, he doesn't really figure. He even ends up going with Teddy Roosevelt on his expedition to Africa where TR hunts all that big game, but Mearns is the bird guy. So nobody really tells the story about him. Right. So it's interesting to start thinking about who our stories are oriented around and what those stories open up and what they might obscure. So I started thinking about people like Mearns because he ends up being a recurring figure or maybe a kind of anchor in my story, because if the story is instead about movement or motion, if it's about how empire works, if it's about how like people and artifacts and ideas circulate, it actually could make sense to follow somebody like him, right? Because it's the movement, it's the circulation um, that becomes sort of part of this broader story about continuity. Um, so I think in some ways, looking at these soldiers and thinking, oh, they don't quite fit if the story of the U.S. West stops at the edge of California, um, or they don't quite fit because they aren't necessarily the ones doing the deciding in some of these uh, campaigns that we sort of 
hold up as turning points. Um, what would it mean to sort of think about stepping back and thinking about sort of the arc or length of a career? And really, the book spans almost the length of uh, the life of somebody like Mearns. Um, and so I, I think in some ways, I'm not sure I totally had a method completely articulated at a moment when I was thinking, oh, how do we connect these landscapes that uh, are often part of totally separate histories? Oh, look, there's actually a significant number of soldiers who served in both of these places. How might they have been thinking about connecting the landscapes of their service? But I do think there's something bigger here about um, what it means to follow sources everywhere they go and maybe not stop when they cross over to the edge of something that might be traditionally considered a different realm or a different field of study. But you're right that there are a lot of really fascinating people um, in this project, many of them U.S. Army men, right? Many of them white, many of them um, with a fair bit of education, though I wouldn't necessarily put them on the level of a lot of those super elite gentleman travelers, right? That, um, that maybe a lot of our ideas about American notions of nature might originate from. But I think one of the things that I started realizing as I dug into thinking specifically about soldiers, and, and really many of them are officers, um, though a lot of the folks that I'm writing about in the Philippines um, are volunteers and enlisted men, so there's a broader range there. But for folks like Dodge, who you mentioned, who leads an expedition to the Black Hills, and folks like Samuel Ovenshine, who I write about, um, sort of uh, camped uh, at the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Tongue Rivers, these are men who are part of uh, a structure that encourages them to write officially, right? The the army produces a lot, a lot, a lot of of paperwork and a lot of words. And of course, these men who are writing a lot of things for their official work are also doing a lot of private writing. Some of them, like Dodge, have plans to publish that stuff. Others, like Samuel Evanshine, are writing these like spectacular and deeply intimate letters to their wives, right? In some, there are moments where you think, oh, I really, this is not for me. What does it mean to reflect on being a historian who's spending a lot of time with other people's love letters, which honestly is, um, you know, the kind of material that I'm reading when you're thinking about the personal papers of soldiers who are spending a lot of time away from their homes and families. But one of the things I started thinking about was, um, you know, the multiple dimensions um, of the kind of imperial work that soldiers are doing. Um, and this is connected not just to the sort of material transformation of the landscapes that soldiers are tasked with, but it's sort of accompanied by a kind of figurative emptying. And at the same time that soldiers are doing this work to transform landscapes, they are literally writing a version of the landscape that reproduces some of those stories about an empty West waiting for settlement when literally they are encountering Native people all the time, right? So it's interesting just to think through the sort of intellectual work and the writerly work that is also part of enacting U.S. empire in a lot of different places. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about what that means, right? So Dodge is sort of positioning himself as someone who's going to write some books about the Black Hills and about his experience, right? He's an authority on the West. He's lamenting the old frontier at a moment uh, when he's not maybe able to name that he's the one, you know, sort of shepherding forward a particular kind of occupation and transformation. So that's super interesting. And then there are folks like this guy, Samuel Evanshine, right, who later serves in the Philippines, um, but Ovenshine 
is, um, ha, you know, is someone who's certainly grown up at a, at a moment when all of those ideas about the promise and possibility of the West are circulating everywhere. And he gets out West and he says something like, I've seen enough of this splendid country, right? We should leave it to the folks who live here, right? It, he doesn't find it to be a wonderland. He doesn't find it to be splendid or spectacular. And so in some ways, in these really small ways, he's just sort of offering an, an alternative read of the landscapes that are framed in one particular way to the nation. And so I think sort of uh, zooming in a little bit on some of those more personal reactions to landscape also, I think, shows us the way that the work itself is filtering into how people see and, and what is worth sort of sharing back at home. And I think the, I don't know, thinking about the form of the letter um, is something that um, I really enjoyed reflecting on. And there's just some really great work about um, soldiers' letters and the ways that we might sometimes focus on the folks who are away from home doing the extraordinary thing versus how life changes um, at home and what kinds of opportunities are available to sort of women who are at home. This is a little bit of a tangent, but Brian Roberts has a great book called American Alchemy that's thinking about this in terms of gold rush era America. And, you know, in some ways thinking a lot about the visibility or invisibility of the women uh, that a lot of these men are writing to is something that's sort of underneath the surface for me as someone who ended up writing a book that is mostly centering soldiers. That's a really interesting point. And, um, you know, if we're thinking about sort of the spread of the, the, the knowledge that is that is being created by these letters, what role do the women play in then spreading that knowledge? Themselves? Who are they talking with about these letters? What letters are they writing in return? That's a really interesting point. Kind of got my brain going there when you mentioned that. That's good. Yeah, well, and I don't, I don't really have an answer to that, but but this yeah. just makes me want to highlight um, one of these women um, because I think her role in crafting the archive that contemporary historians might have to work with is super fascinating. So there's a um, a surgeon who serves in the Philippines. Um, he's not a commissioned officer, right? It's a more of a part time appointment. Um, he. His name is Paul Fletcher, and he is married to a woman named Hueen Fletcher. And Paul Fletcher's letters are at the Missouri uh, History Museum, right? So again, the place I went to look for materials on the St. Louis World's Fair turns out to have some materials from folks who served in the Philippines, so that's exciting. But the materials that exist um, are Paul Fletcher's letters, but they've been copied into a letter book by Hueen. We don't have the original copies of the letters. So there's this layer of sort of, there's an editorial eye, right? There are choices. I don't know if Hueen Fletcher copied everything or if she made some decisions about what stays and what was too intimate or what was too uh, awful, right, to make it into the book. It's unclear if the letter book was an act of just sort of being close to her, her husband while he was far away and very clearly scared about some of the things that were happening, or if she's preserving those letters for posterity, for their son to see at some point. It's really interesting just to sort of wonder about that act of transcription and what kinds of choices are embedded or not in that in that move. And then this letter book is just so fascinating to me because there's a photograph on the inside cover, and it looks to be a photograph, um, you know, I think it's from a christening, if I'm remembering. Um, but what's 
memorable about it is that it clearly was of the three of them, Paul, Huene, and their son, but someone has ripped Huene out of the picture, right? Does she do that? Does she Whoa, not, wow. <laughs> not, not want her image to be part of the record? And so it's really, really fascinating. Oh, I, I misspoke. I'm, I found the page where this is, and there are two pictures. There's a picture of Paul and their son, Robert, and then there's a picture of Mrs. Paul Fletcher and son, Robert, but Huene's face has been ripped out of the picture, right? So she's, the three of them are present there. She's not there. And so, you know, in terms of just thinking about, again, that uh, harder to locate uh, other side of the conversation, this is such an interesting moment where I'm using these letters, but I'm also really wanting to foreground all of the things that might be mediating my encounter now as a historian with these materials, because it's Huene's transcription of the letter that I have to work with. Well, let's bring this, you, you know, you said you found that at the, the Missouri History Museum where you were doing research on the St. Louis World's Fair. And you talked a bit about that fair earlier, but the fair sort of serves as a bit of a culmination for uh, the story that you tell here, where a lot of these ideas about nature and empire are coming together. So I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time talking about this fair in a bit more depth. So can you explain a bit how this particular event came to be? What's the history of this fair? Uh, who was involved in the event? Who shows up at this event? And then maybe just talk a little bit more about what we can learn from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, why it is so important to the story that you tell here. Sure. So that's another uh, epic question, Steve. So I'm going to I'm going to do my best um, to give I'm learning. Uh, I maybe a need little to... bit of an overview. Um, I need to pare my questions down a little bit is what I'm learning in this interview. <laughs> well, it's, in, in some ways, you know, I continue to marvel at, you know, like th this project is big and weird. And in a lot of ways, you know, like it's it's really putting together stuff that folks have rightly spent whole projects on, you know, one single piece of it. And so I'm really interested in sort of the movement uh, and that circulation of people and ideas um, and artifacts that, that I was gesturing towards earlier, but, but it's, uh, there's really a lot here. So um, World's Fairs are elaborate undertakings. Um, whole companies are formed to plan and organize and execute them, right? Bills are passed in Congress to allocate funding. Um, so I think, you know, a shorter version of this history is that cities put in bids to host these World's Fairs. Um, St. Louis loses out to Chicago for the now quite famous 1893 World Columbian Exposition, but later wins the bid to host the Louisiana Purchase Exposition or the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Those are the same thing. I sort of use them interchangeably. I think it's worth noting, right, that the the argument for a World's Fair often involves some sort of centennial or, uh, you know, memory work. And um, for the World's Columbian Exposition, right? It was supposed to be 1892. They didn't totally get their act together in time, but you could think about 1492, 1892 there. And for the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, again, we're focusing on the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase, but they're a year late. So thinking about uh, national narratives and memory work is certainly part of all of these uh, endeavors, right? So this particular fair, like all the others, it's a massive project, and it's intended by its planners to basically offer what they frame as, uh, what do they say? They say it's an encyclopedia of society, right? So this supposed encyclopedia um, is organized, of course, according to super hierarchical and racist notions of progress and so-called civilization, right? Uh, 
if this is uh, sort of a, a referent for like everything that the folks who are planning think is important, it really reflects their, their ideas and their ideas. Um, if we're thinking about late 19th century anthropology, we're really thinking about scientific racism, a sort of um, stepped capital P progress story uh, that begins uh, with some uh, characterization of uh, non-white cultures as deeply primitive, moving on up to sort of white European society, right? So we understand that those frameworks are deeply racist, uh, but they are structuring a lot of these events that then are telegraphing to the universe all of the things that anyone should need to know. So we could spend hours talking about the details, and the details are sort of uh, extraordinary and unbelievable, right? The level of detail that goes into constructing every piece, the work to solicit funding, um, the folks who are sent out all over the world to gather exhibits, um, the correspondence that the Smithsonian happens to have as it's tasked with putting together a lot of the government's exhibits include, you know, like uh, documentation about how payment will still be due for the snakes that are being sent across an ocean, even if the snakes show up dead, right? Like the, the details are just absurd, right? There's a plaster stegosaurus that is amazing, right? And there's all this correspondence about exactly how to make it the most lifelike. So again, we're really drilling down into super, super detailed um, elements that are supposed to be part of this much bigger vision of sort of an encyclopedic uh, representation of what's important in the world. And just to bring the birds back in here, the Smithsonian, as part of the government uh, exhibits, um, constructs a wrought iron cage the size of a football field in which the birds of the world will be alive and flying around and you could you know walk through it and see that and that wrought iron bird cage is still in forest park in the center of st louis uh because the st louis zoo is right there in 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 forest park and you can still visit the bird cage so all of the things are not gone right there are all these uh moments where some of it's incredibly visible on the landscape some of it requires uh bringing the old map and trying to find where some of these uh, exhibits were located, right? But it's really interesting to think through that sort of past and present sort of line when we're thinking about things like World's Fairs. And you can do this in Chicago too. Um, I'm sure you can do it in some of the other cities uh, that hosted some of the larger um, World's Fairs in the United States. So again, we could spend so much time thinking about the, the really minute details. Um, and it's, it's such fascinating material to sort of get lost in. But it's in my book in part because of the way it shows us the continuity of American empire, right? So um, in, in terms of the way that I'm thinking about this, I think the fair in miniature sort of reproduces some of these narratives of conquest and empire, right? Some of this seems incredibly intentional. The expositions planners are actively working to retell a very particular story of what they would call capital P progress. But in other moments, there are all these like slippages that almost seem too good to be true for the contemporary historian, right? Trying to illuminate all of the things that are going on here. So maybe a couple of examples of this, right? There are moments when um, somebody forgets to add the word exposition when they're describing what's going on. So they're talking about what what the Louisiana Purchase signifies, like that they've they're they're sort of slipping between 1803 and 1904 as they're thinking about um, the bounty of the West or 
um, the group of businessmen and leaders who are part of uh, the groundbreaking for the fair, they literally get lost in a part of Forest Park, which is the area that becomes the fairgrounds, which is labeled on the map as the wilderness. And then the planners decide that they should cut down most of the trees in the area called the wilderness, and then they put the forestry exhibit there, right? So there are ways in which sort of this repetition of the sort of narrative of conquest seems to play out in all of these different ways, some of it intentionally, um, and then, you know, the the workers are called an army, or there are um, the folks who are going all over the country are described, or all over the world to gather materials are called pioneers or described as pioneering, right? So there are ways in which the language of empire seems to be reproduced uh, in St. Louis. But also we could think about the Philippines exposition, right? There's 47 acres that are set aside for this exposition, um, allocated for its, I'm making air quotes over here, naturalness and its lack of quote, artificiality. And so as everyone's like falling all over each other to highlight the authenticity of this exhibit, nobody is talking about how Missouri is not Manila, right? Um, so I think some of these details sort of, uh, I track the, the literal transformation of the fairgrounds at the same time that again, I'm thinking about all of the more figurative work that folks are doing. This sounds a lot like soldiers who are transforming landscapes and then narrating uh, a total uh, narrating a vision of the West that they're enacting, right? So I'm I'm really interested in this relationship between sort of material transformation and then the sort of work of words to craft the story. Um, so I think these details, right? The transformation of Forest Park is one example um, of how empire works this time in miniature, right? As well as how planners are using that sort of figurative or narrative remaking in the language that they're using to describe their work. This does this does that echoing of the work that soldiers are doing in the West and the Philippines. And I think another dimension of sort of why focusing on St. Louis near the end of this book seemed important to me is that um, in addition to bringing these two spaces um, that I've been considering together, I think it's also um, important to note that in the context of the fair, we have some more examples um, or more access to examples where the people who are treated as exhibits, right, the people who are on display are pushing back against some of these narratives. So I'm hoping that I'm also sort of demonstrating some of the limits of empire. Um, I think in the book, I frame what soldiers are tasked with doing over and over again as, as ongoing and unfinished work, right? So thinking through um, the sort of continuity of, of the work of empire, but also recognizing uh, the ways in which it remains incomplete, uh, often because of some really meaningful resistance. Oh, and, and then, I should also say, oh, yeah. before, before you ask me another question, if we're yeah, thinking yeah. about this arc, um, Mearns shows up here too, or at least I'm pretty sure that he does, right? So um, I just about fell off my chair in the Division of Birds when I read in Mearns's field books about how he requested medical leave from the Philippines in 1904, sailed back across the Pacific to San Francisco, gets on a train to go see his family. I think his wife's family might have been in Ohio at this moment, and then he was going to go to the museum to see his colleagues and specimens. But he gets off the train in St. Louis, and then his notes are pretty silent on what he's up to for like two days. The only clue I have is that there's an address, and that address would have put him an easy walk from the fairgrounds. So can I say 100% confidently that he went? Well, I don't have a ticket stub. I don't have any sort of first-person narrative. I don't have any evidence from any of his friends that he was there. But I really think he had to have gone. 
And so there's a moment in the book where I sort of take some time to just sort of use that possibility um, to, to do some speculative work uh, and think a little bit about what he would have seen, what might he have thought about the ways that the landscapes of his service in the West and the Philippines were represented, right? These are places he had lived and worked. He finds himself, if he's at the fair, right, in the Philippine exposition, when he is home on leave from fighting a war that the nation has already declared over, right? And so I just think there's there's so much embedded in thinking about that tension between material work and narrative work, and then for Mearns to have served in the West and the Philippines, and then to have gotten off the train in St. Louis, it that arc just um, affirmed for me that thinking about the fair even though it might seem like a strange move, if you say, oh, I wrote about soldiers and then also there's a World's Fair chapter, um, it just it just felt like that was exactly the way um, to get at grappling at the way that these ideas um, then get like real purchase in the United States, right? Like it's not just that soldiers are seeing all this stuff and putting it down on paper. They're sending it home along with ideas and artifacts, and um, we see some of this stuff enacted uh, during the period that the fair uh, is happening in St. Louis. I know that you can't prove it, but it would almost be more surprising if Mearns didn't attend the fair right? rather than, than yeah, because he's, he's right there. How could you not go, man? Come on. <laughs> Especially given everything, uh, you know, that he had done up until that point and, and considering yeah. that so many of the people he was in regular correspondence with had spent years putting together the government's exhibits, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's incredibly likely, but I also think, you know, it's a it's really generative to have these conversations with yourself mm-hmm. at the edge of what the evidence shows you and to say, well, how mm-hmm. do I responsibly grapple with this in a way that puts all the evidence out there? Here's what I know, here's what I can't know, here's what I'm thinking about. I think mm-hmm. we're at a moment in the field where we're seeing some really exciting and deeply rigorous speculative thinking um, yeah. that that grapples with the fact that the archive uh, exists in ways that reflect the power structures of its sort of origination, right? So, yeah. so you have to think beyond these limits, I think, in, and show your work in ways that open up what's possible. And I think that's super exciting. And then... You begin the book, of course, with a bird, like we talked about, and you end the book with a bird as well. I said we were going to come back to birds here. <laughs> um, and in, in, in this case, you end the book with an image of a bird. It's also the image of, of the same bird, a very kind of distinctive, uh, strange-looking bird. Actually, when I, when I got a copy of your book, Amy, I looked at it and said, what, what is this bird doing on, on the front, this weird-looking bird here? Um, and again, you know, audio audio medium, talking about an image. I encourage uh, folks tuning in to, to Google um, the cover of this book while, while we're talking here. But I wonder if you could talk a bit about this bird on the cover of your book that you also talk about at, at the end of the story here. Um, what is this frankly weird looking bird and what is the significance of this bird to the kind of larger argument that you're making in the book itself oh my goodness well thank you for asking this question and for highlighting the bird just to uh, respond to what you were saying about the cover i think nebraska did just an absolutely stunning job with this and it's a really good cover i totally agree yeah yeah it's, yeah it's it's arresting right this bird is just absolutely stunning i've been looking at this image for like a decade um this photograph actually was taken for that digital collaborative project that i was telling you about that i did with folks at the smithsonian 
And then they were so kind to let me use it for the cover. But, um, you know, I, I think that the reaction you described, Steve, is really what I was hoping for, because I think that we probably all can conjure up the pictures we might expect to see on the cover of a book about soldiers where the word American frontier is visible. And I really was hoping to not have this look like it was a military history focused on the U.S. West. And so um, I, I'm so delighted that I think this doesn't immediately look like um, some, of, some of the books from an earlier moment that are focused on on military violence um, or military campaigns. Not, you know, we know there are plenty of projects that don't necessarily foreground some of the violence, but um, but this bird, I think, suggests that empire can be found in lots of places. And um, for folks who don't have this image in front of them, um, I will just describe that what Steve said about the bird is looking like a weird bird. It's sort of an unrecognizable bird if you're regular spaces involve uh, moving somewhere in the United States. This is not an American bird. And so I think in some ways, having this bird be the bird on the cover sort of suggests that this project maybe is going to move in ways that we don't expect for a for a book that is about the American West. And I really love that. But um, I'll just describe this bird really briefly for folks. Um, normally, I make this like hand gesture to describe the hornbill that's coming out of the front of this bird. But um, it's sort of, it's like bulbous or um, it's a large beak with this like protrusion. Um, you can tell that it was once really vibrant and colorful. There's sort of like a hint of like a reddish orange. But one of the things that happens when, um, well, birds with beaks that have blood flow die, someone's going to gonna correct me if I get this not quite uh, perfectly. Um, but there is blood flow to that part of the, the bird's beak. So when there's blood not flowing uh, after the animal has died or been killed, um, the colors of the soft parts and of the beak, they fade, right? So uh, often the information on a tag is really critical or in a field book because it tells us things about the bird that we actually can't see if it's going to become a specimen and uh, get placed in a drawer for folks to study in the future, right? So in some ways, uh, there really is this transformation from living thing to specimen. Um, and it's a transformation I, you know, had the privilege of learning a little bit about firsthand. This particular bird um, has, because it has this really large beak, I think we can see sort of evidence of violence in ways that might be harder to see with a smaller bird or steady skin. Um, there are three holes that you can see uh, on the beak. And I think that's uh, likely from the bird shot that uh, was used to kill or collect this bird. And so I think in some ways this image is sort of telegraphing some of the bigger questions about where we look for empire and sort of where we find it and what that might look like and what questions we might bring to an unlikely archive. And these are all things that I'm clearly thinking about in the project. Um, but more specifically, this bird is a rufous hornbill. Um, it's a bird that was collected in the Philippines during an expedition that Edgar Mearns led in 1906. Um, and I tell the story of that expedition um, as maybe another example of sort of um, the work of empire in, in a sort of more bounded and sort of miniature way, focusing on this mountain, focusing on um, collecting in a very particular way. Um, but more broadly in the book's conclusion, um, I'm using this hornbill to reflect a little bit on natural history and also what I'm thinking about as unnatural history, right? To sort of think 
more about what grappling with you know, the imperial dimensions of museum collections might add to the scientific knowledge that these specimens help us to understand. And in the book, I suggest that the Hornbill shows us the collision of nature and empire, as well as maybe how soldiers can help us to see what this interplay looks like. Um, and again, I really hope that this um, unexpected image for a book that might have soldiers and frontiers in the title um, might prompt folks who might not normally read about soldiers to be interested in this take um, on sort of what soldiers might be able to show us about this uh, interplay between nature and empire. And then very briefly, as we start to approach the, the end of our conversation here, I'm wondering if you can bring the story up just a little bit to the present day. And in particular, I'm wondering if, you know, a historian sometime in the future, if they wanted to tell a, a similar story about the U.S. military and about science and about knowledge creation, and about empire in the early 21st century, could they do so? I guess what I'm asking is, is the U.S. military still involved in this kind of work, in the scientific work of empire building uh, today? Well, I think that's a great question. And um, I also uh, think that uh, somebody could write a really excellent dissertation starting uh, with that question. So if anyone is dissertating and listening to this, uh, it's yours. Go for it. Um, I'm a 19th century historian, right? So I'm sure there are lots of folks who are more qualified to talk about the contemporary dimensions of sort of U.S. military and imperial presence around the world. But um, I do gesture towards some of the more recent overlaps between military and natural history work uh, in the book's conclusion. Um, and I'll just tell you, you know, briefly about that. So one of the things I learned when I was working at the Smithsonian is that they have like a, a feather lab focused on bird airplane encounters. And this is easily Googleable. You can read all about them. They do some great outreach work. Um, and and so that made me think, oh, like there's there's a lot of this work happening in the present, right? The work of natural history collections and then studying the existing collections, that that it's not just preserving old material, right? There are new specimens that arrive in the collections through a multitude of pathways, but also there's a lot of work that can be done with the existing collections because we have new techniques uh, for like extracting DNA from like the claw of an eagle um, that's in the collection to sort of think a little bit more about understanding um, its genetics, right? So, so that's super exciting. There are a lot of new things that can be done with these old materials if they're cared for well and caring for them well is a really, um, it's a full-time job for a lot of people. And I feel like I've really cultivated an appreciation for what it means to do the care work um, required to maintain these collections so that scientists and also folks like me can show up and ask questions about them. Um, one of the things I also learned uh, just by sort of being at the Smithsonian is about how some of the specimens in the collection still come to the museum directly from US military bases. Um, and to give you an example of sort of how that happens. Um, there are lots of things you have to do to like keep airfields clear and safe for people. And sometimes that means uh, setting traps or hunting. I don't know the specifics. Um, but what that means is that there, uh, if you just do a, you can do a Google search on the uh, public database of the Smithsonian and notice that some of the more recent specimens, um, I think there are some small rodents in particular, um, come from U.S. military air bases in the Middle East, which is just a super fascinating link between the contemporary shape of natural history collections and the work of the U.S. military. So I do think there are, are some continuities here if we're sort of thinking about some of this blurring of scientific and military work 
uh, in the 19th century, stretching a little bit forward. And I also point to um, a soldier who served in Iraq who wrote a blog about the birding that he did during his deployment, and that turned into a book that was published by the Sierra Club, right? So my intention with sort of gesturing in this direction was just sort of to recognize that military and scientific work and also ideas about nature and empire continue to be tangled together in the 21st century. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. And then toward the end of my conversations, I always uh, like to ask my guests to put themselves in the shoes of someone reading their book. And then thinking about maybe a year after they finish the book, maybe five years after they finish the book, some point in the future, if they were to reflect back on the book, what do you hope they take away? What is sort of one big major point that you hope a reader would remember from the story that you tell here further on down the line? Well, that's an excellent question. Also not a small one. Um, it's a well. question that usually when I ask it, my guests will be like, that's not a very easy question, Steve. That's a really hard one. And so I feel a little bad asking it, but I, I no, like but to think that it's, it's a generative question too. Yeah. Yeah. Generative is a great word. It's a word I really like. Um, so in some ways, I'm really close to this project, right? The book became real and out in the world like less than three weeks ago. Um, so in some ways, I haven't gotten the, the distance um, that maybe a reader... Uh, would have if they uh, took the time to read this book and then were thinking about it a year or five years later. But um, I do have a couple of things that maybe I hope folks uh, might think about as a result um, of this. Um, I think first, maybe it's a methodological sort of takeaway. And I think sort of put simply, that's following sources across fields of study help us helps us see new things, right? I'm a historian of what's currently the U.S. West, but the soldiers I studied traveled across that geographical boundary to the Pacific. I'm also a historian doing cultural history with sources that are often considered sources for military history. And I'm also interested in the sorts of things that soldiers are doing when they aren't directly soldiering, and, and also about interested in how all of that might filter back into the shape and texture of U.S. empire and U.S. imperial violence. So I think one takeaway might be around thinking through what we get when we follow our sources beyond uh, the traditional boundaries of our fields and just sort of to think through what shows up when we sort of maybe sit on the fences between a lot of these subfields that we're interested in. Then I think um, another takeaway might be, you know, to, to sort of really foreground that U.S. soldiers could show us that ideas about nature and empire are tangled together in the 19th century and, and beyond, right? So in the book, I'm really thinking about how soldiers' work and the words that they wrote show us not just how they were thinking about the landscapes of their service, but also how they transformed them materially with their labor, but also figuratively and narratively in the stories that they told about their work in their private and public writing. They show us what the work of empire looked like um, in the field and on the page. And I hope I'm demonstrating to readers that this imperial work isn't separate from ideas about American nature. Right. I think one of the things that I've taken away from working on this project is that I don't think we can look at 19th century ideas about nature without reckoning with empire. And then finally, and uh, I know this book has been out. Um, what did you say? Three, three, three weeks was the official release date. So, yeah, just, you know, just under three weeks, <laughs> just under three weeks. So very fresh off the presses. But I'm always curious about what my guests are thinking about next now that, that the book has been released. So even if it's in the very early, early stages, I'm curious what your next project might be. What are you working on now? Sure. Um, well, I guess I was thinking about this question and trying to figure out exactly how to answer it, right? Because 
I want to sort of acknowledge that as scholars, we're always expected to have a next project to talk about, right? It's the sort of thing that telegraphs the kind of scholar we hope to be. And I think it's supposed to show that we're more than whatever the dissertation or the first book was about. Um, so I guess, you know, my really honest answer is that I'm thinking about how or um, if, if I should do it at all, um, to turn, um, if I should turn what I, I've often thought of as the second project into an actual thing. Um, so working on my dissertation, right, which is now this book that we've been talking about, it sort of pushed me to engage a lot more fully with museum studies and um, with the history of natural history. And I know I want to keep leaning in that direction, but I'm not totally sure how I'm going to go about that, um, which I guess is probably okay because like we've been saying, it's been three weeks. Um, but I want to normalize just like taking a little time to figure out what's next. Um, because I think something that we don't always talk about is how much a first book has to carry right? Uh, the dissertation, you know, earned me my degree, the, you know, nebulous book project helped me get my first job as a visiting assistant professor, and then the job that I currently have, it helped me earn tenure, right, which went into effect in July. So I'm really excited to think about what the next thing is, and maybe to reflect on what it means to get to work on something that won't have to carry all of that additional weight, if that makes sense. Um, I'm also getting ready to teach our uh, capstone courses, and I'm hoping that, like, being at the beginning of whatever's next for me is only going to help me support students starting their very first independent article length research project um, even more eff effectively. Uh, but I do think I'm not done with birds and I don't think I'm done with natural history or museums either. But at this point, that's sort of where, where I'm at, taking a little time to think about what's next. Um, I love that. And honestly, I feel like in this line of work, we don't spend enough time talking about taking time like that. So yeah. I think that's that's a fantastic answer and not one that, that I hear enough when I ask that question. So thank you for saying so. Sure. Dr. Amy Kohout is an associate professor of history at Colorado College and is the author of Taking the Field, Soldiers, Nature, and Empire on American Frontiers, which came out, as we've been saying, about three weeks ago in January 2023 with the University of Nebraska Press as part of their new Many Wests series. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amy. Thanks so much, Steve. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>